verses right now, but we're going to look at a pretty large chunk. This morning we're going to look at this from the angle of Judah. Next time we're going to look at this from the angle of Joseph. Genesis 44, verses 14 through 17, found on page 38. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. They threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? I didn't say that right. That's okay. (laughs) What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now your Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go back to your father in peace. This is God's word. You can be seated. Right, if you've been uh, following along, we've finally now come to what is the climax of the Joseph story. Joseph and his brothers are now coming face to face with each other. And more specifically, this is Joseph and Judah face to face. Because both Joseph and Judah, as we've learned, are pictures of exaltation through humiliation. Lives that go up by going down. Joseph, if you remember, is dad's favorite son. He has the firstborn status. He's given all this preferential treatment. He has these dreams. These dreams make him conceited, cocky, arrogant. God humbles him. He pushes him down into pits into prisons, and then God exalts him to the right hand of Pharaoh, and so now he is the prime minister of Egypt. Judah, Judah begins as this heartless and cruel person. He's the ringleader of his brothers. They sell their brother Joseph, of course, as a slave. And really, it's Judah's calloused heart that we looked at last time, So callous that he can look at his widowed daughter-in-law and say, take her and burn her. But what God does, as he so often does, is he heals Judah's calloused heart. And he does this, really, by pushing him down. It's Judah's sin that pushes him down. Our sin will always push us down. And so Judah gets pushed down into this humiliating pit... And of course, as we remember last time, as he's about to put to death his widowed daughter-in-law, she says those words to him, hawk or not, please recognize. Please recognize Judah, the man you are, the person that you've become. And it's with those words that Judah's heart is exposed, and he recognizes his guilt. In fact, Judah is the first person in the Bible to say, I am a sinner. And it's through this now that God exalts him. 
So now we're here 20 years later. Joseph and Judah come face to face. I think most of you know the events that lead to this confrontation, but I want to just take a little bit of time to just go through them. There's a powerful, severe famine. Worldwide famine. So Jacob sends his sons, minus Benjamin, down to the breadbasket of the world to Egypt to get food. They come before Joseph, who is now the most powerful person of the most powerful nation. And there's that dramatic scene where it says they bow before him. And I love what it says in Genesis 42, verse 8. It says that Joseph recognized them, but his brothers did not recognize Joseph. Again, here's that same word for the word recognize. It's hawker. Comes right out of that root word, hakernah. Just like Judah can't see Tamar because she's disguised as a prostitute. Just like Isaac can't see Jacob because he's disguised as Esau. Just like Jacob can't see Leah because she's uh, disguised as Rachel. The brothers cannot recognize. They can't see. But Joseph sees. And see, this is the question at hand now. Will the brothers come to see? Are they going to see that who's behind that face and behind that judge is their brother? Will they come to a place where they can say, I was blind, but now I see? Can you see today? And verse 9 says, then when these brothers are bowed before him, that Joseph all of a sudden remembers the dreams And he immediately becomes really harsh with them. He accuses them of being spies. Uh, Look at how they respond in verse 13 of 42. They say, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. So then Joseph comes up with this plan. He throws them into prison. A few days later, he releases all of them except for Simon. He keeps Simon as a hostage, and he tells them, I need proof that you're not lying to me. Bring back this brother that you tell me about. So they go home, minus Simon. And in their minds, I think, we're never going to see this brother again. Because... Their father Jacob, and I hate to say it this way, but I, it, it, it's what I see in the text. Jacob is a pathetic father. He is still showing favoritism, just like he showed favoritism to Rachel. Then he showed favoritism to Joseph. Now he's showing favoritism to Benjamin, and this favoritism is poisoning the whole family. There's no way dad is going to let us take Benjamin back. In fact, look at uh, Jacob's response in, in 42, verse 36. It says, their father Jacob said to them, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. 
when he's throwing this little pity party for himself. Poor me. You guys have ruined my life. Wah, wah, wah. He is. In fact, look at the next verse. Reuben, who's the firstborn son, then says to his father, you may put my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you and trust him to my care and I, and I will bring him back. I mean, do you see here how he's still desperately trying to win his dad's favor? I'll even kill my own two sons. And then Jacob's response is, in verse 38, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are talking about, you will bring my gray head down in the grave in sorrow. Did you hear those stinging words that those, those, those brothers had to hear? Benjamin is the only son I have left. And I hope you see the gravity of this because these brothers have to live every day with a father like this. Two years pass. The famine doesn't let up. It only gets worse. The food runs out. Starvation is staring, staring them right in the eyes. Who then rises up? Who? Judah. Look at uh, the next chapter in verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and see him here before, set him here before you. I will bear the blame for the rest of my life. <laughs> this is a changed man. I mean, I just, I, I just love this. I mean, he kind of steps into this thing and says, all right, Dad, it's time. We have to go to Egypt now. We're going to take the son whom you love. Let's do this. Let's roll. Reminds me of one of my good friends at Wheaton College who I played baseball with, Todd Beamer, who was on flight 93 on 9-11. As he looked at that situation... He called up the, the, the operator and, and, and said, would you please tell my family how much I love them? He prayed Psalm 23 with her. He didn't hang up the phone. He just set it down. And he said, all right, guys, let's roll. And see, that's what men do. Men step it up. Especially in famines, and tough times. And I want you to see Judah here because the old Judah shifted blame and he projected all his faults onto other people. But now listen to him. He says, Dad, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame. You can put all the blame on me. This is a new man. He's being transformed, and as he's being transformed, he's becoming something great. 
And see, what the new Judah does is he rises up and he takes responsibility. Responsibility not just for himself, but he takes responsibility for his father. He takes responsibility for his family. He says, Dad, you can hold me personally responsible. See, this is what men do. They reject passivity. They accept responsibility. Responsibility for their relationships, namely the relationship with God. They accept responsibility for their marriages. They accept responsibility for their families. They they accept responsibility for their lives, for their churches, for their schools, for their communities. That's a man. And I say, where are the Judas? Where are the men? I'm looking at some right now. There are men in this room, and I praise God for that. Now, do you notice in these verses, Jacob is called Israel. Now, I have a theory on this. Well, first of all, it's because Jacob is once again acting like Israel. I mean, this is a guy who had a wrestling match with God and was touched and transformed by God. Now he's finally giving up his Isaac, the son whom he loves. And here's what I think. I think it's Judah's transformation that's bringing the Israel out of Jacob. I don't want to jump on the bandwagon so much this morning, on the Tim Tebow bandwagon, but I'm going to. (laughs) Because that's what I see when I see Tim Tebow. The greatness of Tim Tebow is not that Tim Tebow is great, but the greatness of Tim Tebow is that Tim Tebow, because he is a transformed follower of Jesus Christ, makes everyone around him great. That's what transformation does. The transformed life is not just about you becoming great, but it's about Your transformation, bringing out greatness in the people around you. Do you? Do you? Does your life have this kind of effect? Have you been transformed? Okay, now the brothers then arrive in Egypt. Joseph, again, they don't recognize. And he's he's there and he greets them. He's warm to them. And he's like, hey guys, let's... Why don't you come over to the White House, okay? And uh, let, 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 let me throw you a big party there. So they do, and Joseph continues to play with their minds. He, he, first of all, he seats them from the oldest, from the firstborn, all the way down to the youngest. And they're probably thinking to themselves, how does this guy even know this? Well, maybe he is a diviner. Maybe he is a seer. Oh. Then the food served. Do you remember what happens? Benjamin, daddy's favorite, get five times more. Five times more. Then Joseph gives orders to his palace guard. He says, all right, send them off. Give them as much grain as they can take, but take my silver cup and just sneak it into Benjamin's grain. So you have to picture this. The brothers then set off for home. They're probably high-fiving each other. Like, can you believe this? I mean, that could not have gone any better. And then, boom. Their worst nightmare. 
Joseph's palace guard catches up with him. He says, I need to check your bags. The prime minister's special cup is missing. Of course, he finds it in Benjamin's grain. And now we've come to today's text. Because now they're immediately brought before Joseph. And it's here that this drama moves to its climax. But before we look at this, here's what I want to ask. Why is Joseph doing this? It's almost like he's playing them, toying with them. And my question is, is this revenge? All right, guys, you made me suffer. Now I'm going to make you suffer. You threw me in a prison. Now I'm going to throw you into prison. You ruined my life for a few pieces of silver. Now I'm going to ruin your life through my silver cup. Is that what's going on here? Joseph's just repaying evil for evil. Well, I think at first glance it really looks like it, but that's not what's going on here. And I'll tell you the first clue. Joseph is weeping at every stage of this plot. In fact, when you read it, there are seven times in all where Joseph either has to just turn his face Sometimes he literally has to go into a whole other room and he just weeps. He sobs. And see, people who are intent on revenge, they don't weep like this. They take satisfaction in repaying evil for evil. But Joseph is taking no satisfaction whatsoever. Instead, what Joseph has set his sights on is something even more than forgiveness. Because as we're going to learn next week, Joseph has already forgiven them. What Joseph has set his sights on is teshuvah. Do you know what teshuvah is? Teshuvah is the Hebrew word for repentance. And whether you know this or not, teshuvah is central to the whole Bible. It's what the prophets are continually calling the people to do. Teshuvah, repent. It's why Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Teshuvah, repent. More importantly, when you come to the New Testament, Teshuvah is at the heart of every sermon Jesus ever preached. Repent. Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, well, what's the big deal about repentance? Listen to me. The whole key to change, to supernatural heart change, leading to life change, is repentance. Teshuvah. And see, this is what Joseph is going for. Because what Joseph wants is not just to forgive them, but he wants these guys to actually become what he has become. Because what Joseph knows is that God took this little cocky punk, arrogant, and God did more than forgive him. But God redeemed him. He redeemed his life from the pit. 
And because of this redemption, now Joseph is, is acting as a mini redeemer. And this is exactly what Joseph wants for his brothers. He wants them to be more than just forgiven. He wants them to be redeemed. Redeemed so that they can redeem others. And for this to happen, there must be teshuvah. There must be sincere repentance on the brother's part. Because forgiveness will heal, heal Joseph's heart, as we'll look at next week. But for the brothers to be healed and transformed and changed from the inside out, they must repent. So here's what Joseph is doing in these chapters. He is recreating the exact same scenario where 20 years before, his brothers just blew it. He's replicating all the circumstances of the original crime. All the same conditions are put in place. This time the favored son is not Joseph. This time the favored son is Benjamin. That's why Joseph says to them, bring me Benjamin. What he's doing is he's testing them because he knows that his father, even though he's not there, will only entrust Benjamin to them if his father knows these guys have changed. See, then once they pass that test and they bring to Joseph Benjamin, Joseph now turns up the intensity of this test. I mean, it's like he takes the knife and he just puts it in their wound and he just pushes it in there deeper. He lavishes favoritism on the favorite son, Benjamin, five times more. These guys are probably like, wow, this stranger... Maybe dad is right. Maybe, maybe we just suck. See, what Joseph's doing is he's doing whatever he can to just make his brothers jealous of Benjamin in the same way that they were jealous of him. And then when he places the smoking gun in Benjamin's grain, he's just making it so easy for these guys to just do away with him. Just like they did away with Joseph 20 years ago. But it's here that I think we see one of the most beautiful, complete pictures of Teshuvah in the whole Bible. It's a repentance that produces transformation. It's a transformation that produces greatness. And it's a greatness that makes others great. It's all here in our text. First of all, look at verse 14. Joseph was still in his house. When Judah and his brothers came in. Notice, it's no longer the brothers. It's now Judah and his brothers. Because Judah has now emerged as the leader. And Judah is the one who's leading these guys into repentance. This once cruel, heartless man. He's the one who's leading them. This time, rather than saying, take the little rat and throw him in a pit and let's make some money off him, he falls face down before Joseph. Face down. Because repentance has begun. Repentance always begins when we come in humility, face down. When's the last time you've been face down? 
And then Judas speaks. Verse 16, he, he, he addresses Joseph while face down. My Lord, what can we say? What can we say? We're guilty. And I say, guilty of what, Judah? I mean, they haven't done anything. But Judah is right because Judah is not referring to what's happened in the last couple of years. He's saying, we're guilty. We're guilty of what we did 20 years ago. And he says, look at how he puts this in verse 16. He says, God has uncovered our guilt. More literally, you know how this reads? God has found us out. (laughs) Your guilt and your sin will always be found out. Now there are three aspects to teshuvah. And this is the first aspect. The first aspect of repentance is to admit that I've done wrong. So what Judah does in Genesis 38 is he just finally comes out and he admits his wrong. He says, she's more righteous than I. More literally, it would translate, she is righteous, not I. It's putting this into hiding. It's, it's putting this into covering up our wrongs. It's, it, it's coming out and publicly saying, my Lord, we're guilty. I like how he puts this in verse 16 when he says God has uncovered our guilt or more literally God has found out our sin. I think sometimes we lack the courage to do this. I think we lack the courage and the guts sometimes to to, to come out and say I'm guilty. Can you do that today? Can you? Could you stand before everybody right now and say I'm guilty? Sometimes God has to help us out. He has to do it for us. And see, when God does this, it's usually through a traumatic experience like this one. But here's what we know. When God cracks us open, when God lays our heart bare, it's not him punishing us for our sin. It's his grace. It's always a grace when our sin finds us out. It's always a grace when our sin is exposed always a grace because now we have the opportunity for teshuvah for repentance which leads to healing and transformation this is the first aspect of, re- of repentance god i acknowledge my sin before you all of it the second part of, of, of repentance is contrition contrition is is this deep remorse for the wrong i've done Contrition is when I feel sin's weight. It's gravity. Because it's the weight of sin that crushes us. It pushes us down. It humbles us. It humiliates us. But for change to take place, it takes place right there in the humbling, in the humiliating, in the crushing, because we'll never become more. Until we first become less. That's why David, after his great sin of murder, cover-up, adultery with Bathsheba, when this stuff finally is exposed, when it's finally laid bare, when he finally comes clean with it, he ends Psalm 51 and he says, God, you don't delight in burnt offerings. I bring them. 
You don't light, delight in, in, in sacrifices, or I would sacrifice them. He says, what you delight in is a broken and a contrite heart. That's contrition. It's this intense brokenness over my sin. I remember the first time I felt this was when I was in the second grade. I was already trying to be the class clown. And there was this girl who was the biggest person in the class, very overweight. I hate to use the word fat, but that's what she was. And she got up to go get her milk. She was sitting right in the front row, right in the center. I saw that her sandwich was sitting on her desk. I wanted to laugh. I took her sandwich. I put it on her seat. She, she came back. She didn't see it. She sat down. The sandwich was a pancake. But I'm telling you, the moment I saw her sitting down, I was crushed. I was like, no. It's too late. I was crushed. Like, are you kidding me? You can do that, Rod, for a laugh? When's the last time your sin has crushed you? I'll tell you, Judah's crushed. We see how crushed he is by how he approaches Joseph. He's face down because he's broken and he's contrite. And he says, what can I say, my Lord, except this, that we are now your slaves? In other words, we deserve the full punishment. And we are willing to take the full blow. Have you ever approached him that way? Oh, I deserve it. I t- whatever. The full blow. That's contrition. You know, we like to pray for revival around this place. And in fact, last night we gathered here, and that's one of the things we pray for at Crossroads, for revival and for spiritual awakening. But I'm convinced that there will not be spiritual awakening until God's people first get serious about sin. And until we're cut to the heart by it. Until it crushes us. Because the kingdom of heaven will only move as fast as repentance. The kingdom of heaven is here, he said. Repent. The third stage of repentance. It's not just admitting. It's not just contrition. It's change. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change in behavior. It's turning from sin to righteousness. It's turning from disobedience to obedience. More importantly, it's turning from ourselves and turning wholeheartedly to God. That's why Joseph's final test, he says to these guys, all right, look, guys. You're all free. Only the one who stole the cup. He's the one I'm going to punish. Go. Get out of here. Go home. See, and it's at this moment now that Joseph is going to find, the, find out the truth about his brothers. And now we've come to the whole climax of the Joseph story. Look at verse 18. Then Judah went up to him. And said, 
First of all, the, the, the word there, went up, is a technical term. It, it literally means to draw near. It's the same thing Abraham does. It's the same word in Genesis 18 when, when, when God tells Abraham to this stranger that I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness. It says then that Abraham drew near to God because he drew near to God to plead with him on behalf of wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. Judah is doing the same thing here. He stands before the most powerful person in the world, the earthly judge of the world, and in utmost humility and utmost confidence, just like Abraham, he stands in the gap and he pleads. He priests. He's a priest. On behalf of whom? His brothers? Not really, because those guys are free. He priests on behalf of his dad and Benjamin. And I can't read it all right now. I, I, I'm going to encourage you to go home and read um, what he says to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph. But he retells the story, and he basically ends it by saying, Please, my Lord, please. I must take Benjamin back to my dad or my dad will die. In fact, I want you to just think deeply about this because look at verse 27. This is Judah talking to Joseph. He says, your, your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from him too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my, my gray head down in the grave in misery. Judah's retelling Joseph what his dad said to him. And in verse 27, <laughs> he's saying, you know, my, my wife bore me two sons. One is lost. Now all I have is Benjamin. And I say, oh, really, Jacob? Two sons? And now all you have is Benjamin? And yet here is Judah. Please, sir, for the sake of Benjamin, for the sake of my father, let the boy go free. And then it all culminates in verse 33, where he essentially says, in the place of the boy, Take me. Even Abraham didn't go that far. Judah lays down his life for even those who've caused him great pain. And see, when Joseph hears this, you go to chapter 45, he literally has to leave the room, close the door, he weeps. He sobs so loudly that even the Egyptians throughout the house can hear him. What's wrong with him? This is the power of Teshuvah. Powerful. See, Judah has repented. 
He's led his brothers into repentance. He's turned. He's turned from loving himself. Where it's all about your life for me. Where it's all about Judah. Now he is a man whose life is all about others. It's my life for your life. Greater love has no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. And the most exalting thing anyone can do is to lay their life down. You know why Judah can do this? Because God has changed him. God's humbled him. God's humiliated him. He's ripped him open. He's wrecked him. And don't forget, in Genesis 38, Judah too is a man who lost two sons. And his cold cruel, calloused heart has been made tender and Judah's been transformed into something great. And at the heart of his transformation is Teshuvah, repentance. And in his repentance, Judah has now become a mini-redeemer. And I read this I say, God, let me be a Judah. And God, raise up Judas in this place. Raise people up who've been so broken and so crushed by their sin, but have experienced your grace. A grace that now changes them from the inside out where their lives are now lived. My life for you. And I guess this just leads me to ask one important question. Where do we get the power to do this? Teshuvah, repent. We need a power. Listen, this whole story points us to Christ, doesn't it? Do you see him? Joseph points us to who Christ is. I mean, he's Lord of Lords. Jesus, who just like Joseph, leaves his father, comes into this world, rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit, the ultimate pit. And then there he is. He's raised at the right hand of God as the judge of the universe. But like Joseph, behind this judge... If you have eyes to see, you see your brother. Because look at what he says in verse 4 of chapter 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph. Do you see him? Come close to him. He loves you. He forgives you. And he will redeem your life from the pit. But see, as great as all this is, Judas so beautifully points us to who Christ is and what Christ has done. 
and what Christ came to do. Christ came to say, my life for your life. And he laid his life down so that you and I today can have life. We can have life to the full and we can have life with the father as favored sons. And just like Judah drew near to this earthly Lord and he stood in the gap and he preached. How much does this point us to Christ who right now stands at the right hand of God the Father and he priests on behalf of you and me. And for this reason, he makes us beautiful and lovely and clean. And this is why we can draw close to him. We can draw close to him. God says to us right now, come close to me. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I end with this one charge. Repent. Repent. Admit your sin. Be crushed by your sin. And change. Turn from yourself. Turn to him. Because the kingdom of heaven will only move as fast as repentance. Let's pray. In these next moments, the communion table is set. And if God lays it on your heart today to repent, that there are specific things that you just need to admit and come clean and you want to be crushed by those things and you want to turn and you want to turn to him and God this morning I just pray that we could see you that you are the judge of the universe But behind that judge, behind that face, is our brother. I pray that we would come close to you. Raise us up. Transform us. Make us something great for your glory.